Welcome to episode 43 of the Creative Riding Motorcycle Podcast. I'm your host, Buck Roller. On today's show, we got a few topics to topic about. Of course, none of them will be motorcycle related because that would basically just go against everything that I've uh, been working for for the last few episodes. All right, I, I admit that EPA and Caltrans is sort of motorcycle related, but uh, I think you get what I'm trying to say here. On today's show, the first thing I want to start talking about is fuel. <laughs> That's motorcycle related. Also, I've got a couple questions for you as riders, as listeners, as thinkers, as dreamers. And then we will go ahead and just end it all. <laughs> well, that's what we'll do. We'll end it. You'll have to find out. Listen to the show. Bye. So, everybody, I'm talking while trying to do something else at the same time. So forgive me if I'm <laughs> if I break up, if I start talking like William Shatner. Uh, so at any rate, the first thing I wanted to talk about was fuel. And the reason I wanted to talk about fuel was because I've been reading and listening to so many different sources talk about a recent fuel article that came up. And I, I mean, it's actually not that recent, but at any rate, it's like a scare and it's just a, a full of hyperbole, totally untrue. Um, so let's talk about it a little bit. So before I can actually, you know, just delve right into this, you need to understand something that, first of all, let's talk about the, the effects of uh, American fuel on a motor. So in America and probably some other countries, I know Brazil for sure, we have ethanol or, or some sort of alcohol in our fuel. Now in America, in, a, in order to reduce the carbon footprint that we are putting out and not not to make fuel more efficient, but to make it less uh, of a pollutant, they try to add alcohol into it, and uh, specifically ethanol. Now, ethanol, from what I know, if you're going to add ethanol, it's a 10% mandatory blend, and it can go as high as E85. Now, the only blends I know for sure are E10, E15, and E85. And then there's E0 and a lot of race, specialty race gases, which don't have anything and you can actually in some places still get leaded gas um so the other thing to understand is that ethanol what it does to a motor is ironically it's a desiccant so it dries stuff out but it at the same time is hydroscopic so it attracts water so if you have to store your vehicle and it's september now so a lot of people are going to actually be thinking about this in certain parts of the country where old man winter is going to be knocking on the door pretty soon storing your bike for the winter is a big thing and you know unless you have the luxury of riding year round and keeping uh, ethanol based fuel flowing through your bike then having it sit is becomes a real big mess. Now, what, you know, back when ethanol was first proposed, I remember everybody talking about this and even still for certain vehicles, it's really not good for older vehicles. It's not great at all. And for motorcycles, it's really not great. Now for the newer cars and flex fuel cars, they're kind of built and engineered to run off of this stuff, but definitely older vehicles really, you know, they're already probably a thorn in the EPA side because 
a lot of the designs are terribly ugly, but these motors that they're running on are inefficient, not up to the emission standards that you have set for today. So you can't really measure them, you know, by today's standards. But also, you got to have people make this special fuel for them, right? Or not blend it a certain amount. So when I remember when this was first proposed and people were talking about how it's going to dry out your fuel injectors, it's going to rot your carburetors, it's going to break down seals, it's hella shitty for, you know, older older cars and smaller engines that need um, the lubricating. And, you know, that's basically what I was trying to get at with the desiccant part is that petroleum provides lubrication as it fuels, as it combusts, you know, it also has a secondary byproduct of having a little bit of uh, petroleum and, and, and oil in there. It's refined from oil. You know, that's part of its properties. It's why it probably was chosen and, and refined the way it is. So ethanol already has a strike against it in the fact that it doesn't have the same lubricating properties as regular gasoline. Now, having said that, and the fact that, you know, we're already talking about it drying out seals and stuff, now it's drying out my motor, while ironically at the same time promoting uh, hydroscopic, you know, like water attraction, and if you let it sit in your fuel tank long enough, especially over the winter, if you don't forget to winterize your bike, you're looking at a bunch of water pumping through your motor. And not only does water not lubricate and not combust and several other things that are horrible for a motor, well, you've got that in your motorcycle now. <laughs> and so the the big deal with that is, you know, so that's the that's the background with the with the um petroleum and and the gasoline, that's the big deal with ethanol in the first place. Now, the issue that's come up recently that I really believe is blown way out of proportion is the fact that the EPA was talking about making a four gallon minimum purchase standard on the American motorcyclist, the AMA blog. They were talking about the EPA potentially hosing people again by trying to legislate this four gallon minimum. So what it was is, uh, and I, I'd see, I've seen it, I've heard other podcasts even, and, and actual radio shows say that the EPA is going to send jackbooted thugs to your house to arrest you if you fill up less than four gallons. And so motorcyclists are going to be tossed in gulags, <laughs> fed bread and butter. Um, here's the deal. That is not going to happen. And I'll tell you why it's not going to happen in a second. But that's just like the audio version of clickbait. And all these things on the on the Internet about it are just basically clickbait, too. It's really uh, unsubstantiated and totally untrue. And here's the deal. Um, like I was saying before, there's blends. There's E0, E10, E85. I know for sure that there's E10 at the gas station down the street from me. Most of these pumps are blended pumps, which means no matter what octane of fuel that you choose, uh, and no matter if you were at a if you were at a station that offered E10 and E15, uh, when you're pumping from those, there's a residual amount that's left in the hose. As soon as the pump shuts off and it shuts the valve to the hose, you still got from the pump, which is underground, all the way to the nozzle that you're sticking in your car, full of 
fuel, right? And I mean, the hose isn't constantly full, uh, but you know, there can, if up to four gallons, there could be a quart of whatever previous fuel. So if somebody just filled up with 91 and you're filling up with 87, you're going to get a little bit of 91. It's called a blended pump for a reason. And it's because they're blending the two, um, you know, they're three different octanes coming out of one hose. So, you know, the blender pumps, that's why it's such a big deal. And this four gallon minimum is because if you're at a pump that's blended E10 and E15, they want motorcyclists to be aware that you could be getting up to a, a quart of E15 in your tank. Now, the four gallon rule thing for cars and making it a minimum is because a quart in four gallons is not that much, you know what I mean? It's a small, way smaller percentage than if you have a motorcycle with like a two gallon tank and you're getting going to be getting a quart in two gallons. I mean, that's literally double of what the EPA is recommending. And in a car, let's just say you're filling up at least 10 gallons if you're filling up, right? So four gallons is nothing. A quart is nothing to 10 gallons. You know, if you're, the more you fill up your car, the better, the less of a concentration you're getting. But on a motorcycle, especially like a dirt bike or something that may not even have like a gallon or two gallon fuel tank, we're talking, you know, 50% higher uh, than what the EPA is recommending be a minimum. So, I mean, it's, it's incredible to think about it that way. And from the EPA, um, or actually, I'm sorry, from the AMA's blog, you go there and, and it was suggested by a fuel lobbyist to make it a four-gallon minimum. It was never uh, legislated by the EPA. It was never mentioned by the EPA. But um, one of the lobby groups had uh, submitted a quote, and I and I have it here. Um, and basically, um, the ethanol lobby promoted the approach. Quote: E15 can be sold on the same hose with gasoline of E0 to E10 using the configuration, but you should require a minimum purchase of four gallons and apply a label stadium stating minimum fueling volume four gallons dispensing less may be a violation of federal law. Now, that was recommended by a pro-ethanol lobby. That was not recommended by the EPA. That was not recommended by the AMA. That was not recommended by any of the fueling associations like the Oil Institute or, you know, I'm sure there's some gasoline conglomerate that has like an association or a confederation or some of that stuff, right? So when the AMA asked the EPA about it, the EPA said that, you know, that was not the truth. And here's the quote from the EPA's response. Uh, quote, the excerpted portion that you highlighted should refer only to the less than 1% of gas stations that have gasoline pumps that dispense both E10 and E15 from a single hose or nozzle. And the four-gallon fueling minimum for E10 was only required for those co-dispensing pumps and was there to protect consumers. The four-gallon minimum ensures that engines that are not allowed to use E15, like those in motorcycles, do not inadvertently get too much ethanol in the tank. And then to comply with the EPA regulations, most, sta most stations with co-dispensing pumps simply put up a sign that says the co-dispensing pump may only be used by passenger vehicles and separately offer a dedicated E10 or less pump for motorcycles and other engines that can't use E15. So not only did the e EPA say that that's not true, I didn't know that there was 
less than 1% of the pumps in the country that, you know, are blend E10 and E15. Now they may blend different octanes, but fuel grades sound like the same. They're, they're running all E10 and all three octanes or all E15 and all three octanes, whatever they're doing. Uh, there's less than 1% of these gas stations countrywide using the, uh, a blender pump for two different grades, not octanes, but you know, ethanol grades of fuel. So it really doesn't seem like that big of a deal if you read that. But when you read, are we getting hosed again by the EPA by making us fill up a minimum of four gallons, you really freak out, right? So a, not only was it not legislated, B, it was a suggestion by the ethanol lobby to have that signage put up. Um, and it's already required that if you have a certain, uh, ethanol percentage in your pumps that you have labeling up to protect motorcyclists from accidentally filling up anyway. You know, just like you have a green diesel pump so that you don't actually accidentally put diesel in your gas car. It's just, it's crazy. So when I heard all this stuff getting blown out of proportion and then when I heard all these uh, talk shows talking about it and podcasts and reading it in the news and I just was like, what the hell, you know, for reals? So I did a little bit of research actually to find out about more about ethanol and to find out more about fueling in particular, because it got me kind of, um, didn't get me fired up necessarily, but it did get me curious about what really is happening with fuel and what we're putting in our bikes and why it's such a big deal. And to me, it seems like there's, you know, different solutions, but let me get to this right now and and tell you what I learned. So they're doing a little bit of research online. Uh, came across a site called RethinkEthanol.com. Rethink Ethanol is a site devoted to, you know, the whole corn movement and kind of literally rethinking what we've done so far with an ethanol mandate and trying to put it behind us. And one of the first things that it talks about is that uh, we've subsidized farmers not to grow certain uh, crops in order to grow corn in order to you know, get these ethanol mandates up. So uh, they've got a couple numbers here. And uh, of course, this is a site uh, that's anti-ethanol. So I don't know if these are skewed or anything like that. I'm just going to take them at face value. But 30% is the first number they have down. And that's the increase in the cost of corn between 2006 and 2011. And like I said, I remember when the whole ethanol thing kicked off and people were talking about uh, farmers giving up less profitable crops to now grow corn specifically. And it did spiked the prices of corn like way up. And uh, basically it's because um, a lot of people are, are farming it now, you know, and they're dropping other crops, which also raised food prices a little bit because now uh, they saw the dollar signs in their eyes for corn production and, they quit producing other crops, so now you know it comes, becomes more uh, costly to import these crops and stuff like that. And we have the means available here. Uh, Forty is the next number, and that's the number of years that they took uh, to remedy the land from edge tillage. And what edge tillage is is it's planting right up to the edge of your field that removes like any protective boundary for um, you know soil contamination. Uh, water runoff, things like that. And if you look at the South way back in the 1800s, 17 and 1800s, they literally planted tobacco 
up to the forest. And when you go there now, you know, the South is known for its rich clay dirt and, um, you know, a very thick and distinguishable type of dirt. And when you go there now, it's all, you know, based on what they grew and the, and the type of, uh, you know, tobacco plants, I guess, were maybe acidic or something like that. It's all sandy. It's very acidic. Not a lot of stuff will grow. Like it basically kind of ruined the soil. And if you go into the woods where the farmers hundreds of years ago now didn't go, you can see that it's literally a different type of soil. And so that's the same sort of thing that is happening now. And it's been, you know, now that America is transitioning away from an agriculture to a service society, we've been able to kind of do that, um, get away from edge tillage and and actually kind of letting things fallow. And right after the corn thing kicked off in 2006, all that 40 years of um, mitigation to get all the edge tillage planting uh, redone, you know, uh, just went right out the window. And 34 is the last number they have here, and that's land conversion to grow more corn and soybeans. Um, And it says that they've released 131 million tons of carbon into the air between 2008 and 2012, which is much as 34 coal-fired power plants. So basically, the production of ethanol to reduce our carbon footprint kind of backfired because now you've got uh, whatever it is, more farm equipment, more fertilizer you know, creating methane, any, any of this other stuff that's creating more carbon actually. So the, the irony is just the worst part. You know, we drove up fuel prices. We ruined this 40 years of development that we were kind of getting the soil back to, um, basically, you know, very fertile conditions. And we've converted 34 recent land conversions to start growing more corn. That was a problem in Brazil as well. I mentioned Brazil earlier. They run a lot of their cars off alcohol and it's not ethanol from what I know. It's it's a cane based, so I don't know exactly what what type of alcohol that is, but they were devastating um, you know, Brazil is a very populous country and also kind of rural at the same time. And so these great clusters of people demand a lot of fuel. And of course, they're butted up against the Amazon and the rainforest and whatnot. And large swaths of rainforest are being destroyed every year to grow cane to produce, um, you know, alcohol. And when I heard that the cars burned on alcohol and how efficient and great it was, And it was the only way for them to keep up with the demand that the public had because there's no way they could afford the oil. They couldn't mine. They didn't have the oil, um, you know, and the crazy inflation in Brazil at the time. It was just a train wreck. And so I thought, well, this is the answer. And then once you realize that they're chopping down rainforests, they're decimating species and forest land to make farmland and, you know, just to grow more cane and all that great stuff to make an ethanol-based fuel, you realize just how destructive it can actually be. So that's one thing about the the Rethink Ethanol. Their slogan is, we tried, it didn't work. So <laughs> that's, you know, one way to look at it. The other thing is that, you know, I mentioned earlier too, the ethanol is a desiccant. It dries out components in your engine. And so I was looking at ExxonMobil to see what they had as far as additives that kind of counteract what the what the ethanol does. And it's really interesting what I came across. But to begin with, um, I wanted to mention that ethanol burns hotter just because it is an alcohol. And a lot of time when you're 
the ratings that we use for octane in the United States, in other countries they use RON, which is the road octane number or the research octane number, so they're a little higher. So like a 91 in the United States is actually more like a 95 in Europe. Um, so basically what that is is in the index that we use here in America is the AKI or the anti-knock index. So basically... If you have a high compression or, you know, a performance motor, um, depending on your tune and stuff like that, you need a higher octane. The higher the octane, the lower the combustion point, and that means it's more predictable and it'll, it doesn't have to get as hot before it, uh, combust so that you're not getting the temperatures up there starting pinging or knocking. So basically, most cars are built to run on 87, but you know motorcycles are super high compression compared to a, a standard automobile. And also, if, like I said, if you've got a performance car, uh, super high, you know, you've got a souped up car that you've done yourself, or you got like a Lamborghini or something, there's no way they're going to tell you to run 87 in those things. They're, they all usually say premium unleaded. And a lot of motorcycles, newer motorcycles will say that as well. Now, flex fuel vehicles can deal with these ethanol mixes up to, you know, up to 85% ethanol, but that would just destroy a motorcycle's engine and, so that's the whole reason the octane doesn't really matter um, because they all have the same octane d- despite the ethanol mix. So that's just one thing that's interesting to think about is that, uh, you know, we're already working the, with, within the octanes to kind of fine tune it. And now we've got to take into consideration that we've got ethanol added. So I was looking on their Synergy, the Exxon Synergy, to see what they add to their fuels. And... The first thing they have is a detergent, and none of this stuff gives away proprietary secrets. That's just kind of overview. So the first thing, it just says that the the fuel detergent number one, they have seven in total, and the first one scrubs away deposits. And as we all know, almost all fuel will leave a deposit if you, you know, just because of combustion, it leaves a soot or, or you know, any type of heat will typically leave a soot or some sort of residue. So the first detergent gets knock, knocks off all the major stuff. The second fuel detergent uh, basically takes it a step further and goes into the little nooks and crannies. So, you know, when you hone your cylinder, microscopic pores and stuff like that and scratches. So the, the second detergent will go in there. And you gotta, you got to also realize that this is happening at 5,000 RPM, right? Or whatever you're driving at, 2,000 RPM. The third one is a anti-adhesion compound and basically it says that it keeps kind of leaf some ingredients stick around leaving the film on your intake valves so what this adhesion anti-adhesion compound does it basically prevents buildup on the moving parts probably like your valves and your valve seats and things like that the the four or yeah the fourth ingredient is a corrosion inhibitor and that is to prevent rust. And like I said, ethanol is hydroscopic. And so it literally will draw the water out of the atmosphere. And, uh, you know, that's why you can't have it in your engine if you live on the East Coast or up north, somewhere where you store your bike over the winter, because it will promote rust. And despite the fact that it's a desiccant and it dries stuff out, at the same time, it sucks water out of the atmosphere. So it's kind of a weird trick how, how that really works. And so you get some of that in there and your rust will form inside your motor because of the water. And of course you can't combust water either and you can't compress water. So it it really 
works against your motor. So this fourth ingredient being a corrosion inhibitor does that. It kind of keeps um, rust from forming on your components. So it's kind of working to counter, <laughs> oddly enough, the 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 uh, negative effects of ethanol. The fifth one is a deemulsifier, and it says, do you know if fuel can get out of shape? And it's a metaphor because the molecules of fuel can't literally deform. But what they're talking about is that it keeps the fuel from holding on to too much excess water, which can lead, you know, the whole reason why you need the uh, fourth ingredient, which is the corrosion inhibitor. So the the fifth additive is actually kind of working to keep the water out and, and I guess flush it with the fuel out as, as vapor, I'm guessing. The sixth ingredient is a solvent fluid. And what that says is that, you know, Changes in temperature can cause ingredients and fuel to either like coagulate, you know, break down and maybe even particulate. And so the solvent fluid keeps everything literally solvent and flowing and it prevents fuel from congealing. You know, you can't the whole thing with ethanol is that it'll break down into two parts and you'll have water floating uh, on the fuel or it will gum up your carbs and just turn to jello in there or lacquer. You know, I've, I've opened my carb to clean it out and had to clean it with a little bit of uh, like a sort of a, some sort of detergent to get that lacquer buildup out of there. So if, if it sits too long, that's just what typically happens. So the sixth ingredient is a, is a uh, fluid to keep everything moving. And then the seventh ingredient, this is really interesting to me and I'm not hundred percent sure how it works, but they have marker molecules and it, their tagline for this particular ingredient is that it's not about working hard, but working smart. And it says that these molecules go in and signal the dosage of the additive in the gas uh, so that the balance is perfect. So I'm not 100% sure what these molecules do or how they act on the gas, but apparently, you know, they don't let too much of the additive go here or there. Maybe they're like a um, surfactant or something, and maybe they cling to certain molecules and don't cling to others. But I'm I'm sure they're just in there to kind of get this mix to spread out and not you know, clump up in one area or, you know, like, um, what's it called when you like a suspension or something, you know what I mean? If you, if you're familiar with, um, chemicals, there's, you either have a suspension or you don't, and you have to shake it if you don't. So I'm sure this stuff kind of keeps it, uh, spread around and, and working within the whole mix of gas instead of just clinging to one, one spot. So it's really interesting to think of all these detergents that, Exxon Mobil has in their fuels to counteract, it, it almost sounds directly counteract the effects of ethanol. So it's like, well, we have to add at least 10% and it'll, so it combusts uh, cleaner, but let's just add this other stuff because we know it's uh, wreaking havoc. So it's basically like when you're on a medication that has some terrible, terrible side effects. So they go ahead and put you on another medication to counteract that. So I just thought that was kind of an interesting thing. And uh, like I said, I've seen it popping up a lot recently about, you know, the hyperbole about the EPA sending thugs to arrest all bikers because you don't have a four gallon thing really kind of pissed me off. But everything else, you know, I just thought it would be interesting since winter is coming to kind of delve into what people have to deal with and the whole reason why people, sep- you know, store their bikes for winter. And it's because of 
additives like this. You know, you never, I, I, you never know what this stuff is going to do, um, even with these additives to counteract. I'd like to see like a breakdown of how this fuel stores. You know what I mean? So it's, it's kind of an interesting topic. Maybe somebody out there will be able to do it someday and uh, tell me because really we don't have winter here in SoCal. So if you can believe this, my wife comes in or listens to me finish and is like, hey, are you done? Are you done? And I was like, dude, literally my 10 minute rant. And you're asking me if I'm done. You know how this show works. You know I just ramble on and ramble on and like to talk about nothing forever. So I can't. I got shut down temporarily. This means that I probably need to move my recording studio down to the garage or something, or put up some sort of partition here to keep my voice from floating throughout a creative writing manner. <laughs> more, more like creative writing shanty. Hey, something else real quick that I just saw the other day. I mentioned the CARB or the California Air Resources Board the other day on the EPA episode. And I just wanted to say something real quick that's already been generating joke after joke is the new uh, bill that they just signed to reduce methane. Now, it's already been you know, a bunch of things about how California is going to regulate cow farting and all that stuff now, but it was aimed at the agricultural uh, segment and also landfills and organic waste. So it wasn't only agriculture. So basically uh, people think it's, it's funny that, you know, we want cows to quit farting and producing methane and all this great stuff because cows produce a hell of a lot of methane. But what it is is that they want people who have dairies and whatnot or raise cows for beef, I guess, to go ahead and in, in the manure, there's a lot of methane that comes out. You know, cows have like, what, 43 stomachs or something like that. And each one has just exponential farts within it. And it all transfers out into the... Uh, the manure. So basically <laughs> any landfills, people that mulch or use it as fertilizer and all this stuff. I mean, it's like just methane everywhere. And so they're, they want it to these uh, grow or uh, these uh, farmers to put these little methane digesters in the piles of manure so that the methane just doesn't leak out into the air. That's eh, fine. It's not literally, uh, regulating a cow fart or sticking like a vacuum in a cow's butt while they walk around. But also landfills do this sort of stuff too. So it's not only for cows, it's also for any organic waste. But, you know, that's just one more thing we have to deal with with carb. They go around and you can't even paint with um, (laughs) a few, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago, paint went to, or 15 years ago, you couldn't paint anymore with, um, it's all water-based paint here in California instead of lacquer-based like it used to be. So, you know, there's a lot of rules here. Cow farts. Hey, ride report for whatever day this is. I'm going to be down in the garage doing some fiberglass. I'll catch you all in a minute. One and five a glass in. 
Warning! Warning! This next segment was recorded after hours of motorcycle riding and a few hours of trying to get kids to go to sleep late at night. It may be bland and dreary. It may be bland and dreary. So something I was wondering about this week in the midst of (laughs) everything that's been happening with all the stuff I've been talking about with Harley just going down the the tubes and a a whole new onslaught of bikes hopefully coming on for 2017. And uh, all across the globe, there's been a movement to make some smaller bikes. I believe the, you know, Honda and Kawasaki led the way and Suzuki is now entering the 250 CC market. uh, And BMW for the first time in years is releasing a sub 650 bike. Uh, with the G310. So there's a lot of things happening in the world right now. And I was wondering, you know, to kind of cycle back to Harley, I've been talking about them like at least once in every episode. They just laid off a bunch of people last year or made a bunch of cuts last year in in order to focus more on their marketing. (laughs) And now they're cutting 200 more positions at least. And so it's like, really? So if you spent all that money on marketing, uh, hopefully it worked, but I just don't think it did because of the other things that are popping up right now. But it led me to wonder with all these new bikes coming out and with the motorcycle market kind of coming to like a plateau in some ways. And I'll talk, I probably will talk about that in a little bit, but what would, what would make a good motorcycle name and if you were in charge of it, how would you motorcycle market a motorcycle if you were the designer or I guess if you were on the marketing team? And one way I was thinking of is that I am not 100% sure about this. I know I said a few episodes ago that Harley Davidson probably sprinkled their uh, money all over the, the Harley and the Davidsons that was coming out. And I actually had an email from a listener we talked a little bit about this. He had watched the show and said that, you know, it seemed like Harley was dragging everybody's uh, name through the mud, basically, and kind of made Harley out to be heroes. And uh, he's, I'll quote this email. This is from a listener, Paul. It says, I just finished watching Davidson Motorcycles Presents the History of Motorcycles, <laughs> which is already a dig, right? And uh, he just is saying that he appreciates the Discovery Channel for trying to make a mainstream program about bikes where OCC took the dysfunctional family approach. Harley and Davidson's is all about overly dramatic, heartfelt conversations around improbable race scenes. And I have to say that, yeah, it's that's probably exactly it was it was definitely Hollywood has to put their fingers up everybody's ass when they're making a movie. And, you know, they really don't. Nothing is as bland as it really is in real life, right? Because that would nobody would watch that. But um, he says, but mostly dragging through the mud, the names of all other players in the bike market in the early 1900s. And I did hear on Adventure Rider Radio uh, last Friday or the Friday before, actually. And Jim Martin interviewed one of the stars of the show, and. What he said was that, you know, Harley didn't have anything to do with it and that Harley had basically let them into the museum to see the bikes, told them about the history and everything like that. And uh, I replied to Paul that, you know, that's what I heard is that 
Harley had nothing to do with the show, that it was all discovery. And all Harley did was let them into the museum to see the bikes from that period and talk about the history of uh, Harley um, and the Davidson brothers. And I have to say, though, that I'm skeptical just because of this timeline that happened. I mean, okay, the thing, it didn't premiere until September 5th, but it started airing a lot before that, the trailers and the advertisements for it. And right around the time that that started happening, that the, uh, you know, this this uh, thing just started getting pumped like crazy was right around the time that the FTR 750 got released into the media and, uh, you know, Cycle World did like a three, three or four part write up on the FTR 750, which is Indian's flat tracker. OK, this is the uh, rival now that's come back from the grave to haunt Harley Davidson right at a time when Harley is actually kind of going down the tubes. If you listen, I listened to another uh, radio show out of I believe he's out of Colorado or something, but he was talking about how Harley goes or uh, is going down the tubes and i think he even rides a harley he just he sees what uh, he sees it for what it is for what's happening right now right so harley davidson is just getting beat to shit this year with all these uh investigations and recalls and problems coming up and then they've laid over laid off if when this round of layoffs goes through probably 500 four to 500 people in the last within this year uh, well, within the last 12 months. And basically, it's not looking good for them. Uh, you know, they just released the Milwaukee 8, which I don't know how much, you know, traction that thing's gaining so far. And especially since it's like a shower head and all the purists like the airheads and all this shit, you know, they're, or the air-cooled bikes. But at any rate, this was also right around the time that Jared Meese said that he was going to go uh, and he was the development writer for Indian. And, you know, this is like right when the Indian flat tracker was announced, but it hadn't come out yet. And, uh, you know, is he, I'm still not a hundred percent sure if he's going to be riding for Indian next year, but it kind of looks that way. And he, he put a, he put a statement out on Facebook tonight, tonight's uh ride report Wednesday. Uh, he put a fa- uh, statement out on Facebook saying that he's going to give, the old um, XR750 a fling around the track one last time. And so it's not clear whether it's for the season or for his career because he's jumping ship over to Indian where he's been a development writer. So all of this Harley and the Davidsons kind of came out right when all this other stuff is coming out in the media, right? So it's hard to say whether it was all Discovery or whether they had like this partnership with Hartley or in some way. Because, you know, you can you can... To play the devil's advocate, this is why I wrote back in response to Paul, to play the devil's advocate, it really could have been the Discovery staff writer. I mean, I don't get anything from the guys that I like, you know, Daily Bikers. I love Daily Bikers artwork, and Dan over there is such a really cool guy, but I expect zero from Dan. He sent me, like, some stuff to say thanks, but I didn't ask for it, and I wasn't expecting it. And uh, I'm just a total fan of his work. Same thing with, you know, Scott from Noise Cycles. I I love Scott's stuff. And it's really, I think it's cool that he gets out there and actually is racing and building bikes. And, you know, he's, he is a biker at heart where he's building 
uh, for born free racing. You know, he's not just like an image guy. So, I mean, I really do buy into all these things that I like about these people. Um, and everything that I've ever, anybody that I've ever had on the show, I get zero from them. I really just am a fanboy of their work and I like what they're doing and I find it interesting that they are also writers, whether or not what they're doing integrates with writing or just happens to coincide with who they are as a person. So it's totally possible that someone at discovery was just like a big Harley, you know, given that Harley is like one of every two or three motorcycles sold in the U S it's not hard to believe that, you know, producers at or executive producers at a network, you know, they make a lot of money and they probably ride Harleys cause that's what you do when you are a person in America. Right. <laughs> Especially when Harleys are like one of every two or three bikes on the road. So the thing is, is that it could have just been that they could have just been serious fans and they, when they wrote it, they wrote it from that perspective that they already liked Harley and they were going to kind of emphasize certain things. Like I said, uh, Hollywood really fucks out some concepts in films and they will go ahead and uh, dramatize or exploit uh, certain things, leave out others. You know what I mean? They only have a certain amount of time to tell a story of 90 years of stuff. So the other thing I told about uh, I was talking to Paul, though, is that, you know, that movie, they may have dragged these guys through the mud for the early 1900s. And the thing is, is that maybe those people were jerks and maybe Harley Davidson, you know, the reason that they stuck around was because they were persistent or whatever. But now uh, that just, you know, that focused on the first, you know, I don't know how long that show was supposed to have taken place. I haven't watched watched it all yet. But, uh, you know, I don't know how many years that covers. But the early part of the 1900s, right? What they leave out is the last 90 years where Harley, you know, Harley's 112 or 113 years old this year. And so for the past, like, 90 years, they've been shitting on everybody else. They've been, you know, you couldn't have... Jap bikes over 700 and uh, cc's for the longest time because Harley was losing at racing. And back in the day, back when motorcycle men were motorcycle men and you had to race short track miles and road racing in order to get uh, a grand national championship. And this is before motocross was technically motocross or else you probably would have had to race that too. Um, you know, or TT or something like that, you, you know, you had to race all these things to actually be the champion. And then over the years, we broke them into each one into their own little thing. But uh, Harley Davidson wasn't totally into racing back then. And their XR750, which has been out since then, uh, you know, these Jap bikes came in and started blowing them away. So what did Harley do? Harley got laws, kind of lobbied the U.S. government for... Uh, engine restriction sizes and taxes on certain things. So that's why all of a sudden when you see bikes and they're all of a sudden they're coming in at X amount of CC for like a whole, like 350s were really popular for a while. Why? Because anything over that or anything over like two cylinders, you got taxed per cylinder. So you see a lot of giant thumpers back in the day and stuff. And it's the way that they could get 
displacement without having to pay the extra tariff, all this crazy stuff, right? So, I mean, nobody ever talks about that. Nobody ever talks about the fact that they screwed, um, I think... I think Indian came back for World War II or was around during World War II. And I think Harley totally screwed them over with some war contracts back then. They didn't even have a 500cc bike, and that's what the Army wanted. And Harley said, we have it, but then they didn't. Uh, they won the bid and then delivered whatever they delivered, the 1100 or some shit like that. I, I'm not 100% sure. I, I should look. I'll do my research on that and uh, do that in another show at some time. But, what, you know, they just have basically been doing that. And then, of course, the 80s when everything was going to shit. And that's the era, like, early 80s into, like, late 80s, early 90s, maybe, when Harley was just like, AMF owned them and it was just a terrible time. You know what I mean? And people, people kind of joke about that, but now, but Harley's been on top forever. And when you're on top there, you know, you're shitting on everybody else. So, um, they've basically run out of people to shit on cause they're at the top now. So, I mean, now it's just all downhill. They're just going to fall back through, everything that they've kind of built up and they're standing on. When you're standing on the top of shit mountain, you got a long way to roll down, right? So you're going to get stinky and dirty and that's going to be what happens. But that's part of this whole rant that I started here unnecessarily was because of marketing. And so Harley Davidson does branding real well and that's how they've got up to the top. They sure as hell can sell a lot of, uh, you know, water bottles and bandanas and, jackets and shit like that and t-shirts but what about when it comes to actually making a a good motorcycle name and marketing and being a designer now i'll give it to them the harley designers aren't schlubs you know what i mean they're bikers they're riders they're people that are good at their craft they're they're fabricators customizers and uh engineers you know you have to engineer this stuff to be roadworthy and past, you know, dot specs and all this and that. So, I mean, they're a little bit of everything. I know not one guy does all that stuff, but you know what I mean? Their team comes together and and does this stuff. And uh, I was just starting to think about what would you call a motorcycle? How would you market it? And, you know, do you think you could, if you were like in charge of marketing or design, what would you do? Especially if you're like working for a company like Harley, or if you're working for Indian, or if you're working for somebody like um, like Kimco who wants to come and step up into this, uh, you know, some of these voids that are going to be opening up here pretty soon. It's funny because if you look back through history, you have motorcycles with names like the Super Cub, the Dream, the Trail 70 or Trail 90, the uh, Fireblade. You know, sometimes in other countries they give stuff a lot better names. And those are all Hondas. And then on their... On their uh, cruiser line, they have like the Goldwing, the State Line, the Shadow, stuff like that, you know, and it's pretty catchy. The same sort of thing with Suzuki, with the Boulevards, uh, you know, the Water Buffalo, um, stuff like that. Katana, Hayabusa, Ninja, all these cool names. Honda even had the SR71 or the uh, Super Blackbird, rather, probably named after the SR71 Blackbird. Uh, so you got names like that that are pretty cool. And then you got names like the R1200 RT, the G650 GS, CBR600RR, 
NC700D, GSXR650, GSXS750. You know, those don't, for, for whatever reason, when you think of sport bikes now, they don't have names anymore except for the Ninjas. So you got the CBRs, the YZs. Uh, or ours, and then the, um, I don't know, for whatever reason, Kawasaki is the only one that has really retained the ninja name, where everybody else has just gone to like letters and numbers, and I think that's what we've come to expect. And for me, it's not really like a marketing thing at all. It's I, I like the Fireblade. I think that sounds pretty cool, and I don't know what it is about... Uh, certain markets getting like the you know designation <laughs> the, the bike designation from like whatever the factory code for it is rather than giving it a cool name so i don't know if, if that's something good or not i don't know if that's been researched like the dno one the er6n these things just don't sound they're all it's almost like a tongue twister it's not a very good name and it's almost like we ran out of stuff to call it. We just called it the letters, the production things that were like on the packages and boxes or the engine specs. And we're not very creative. And then you have stuff like the Honda Fury, which has some really good, that's a good name. But then you look at the bike and it looks like a kid's chopper. You know, it's just, it's too smooth and sterile where that's the one thing that Harley does do good. And, and Indian as well, the Springfield, the Scout, uh, you know, they used to have the chief, all this cool stuff. And Harley does that pretty good. The sportsters sometimes just have, you know, the 883 low or whatever, you know, it's, it's still cool. Low rider, but then they got, you know, the, uh, fat Bob, the fat boy, low rider, wide glide, the V rod muscle, like V rod to me, those are just some strong letters and it sounds like hot rod, you know what I mean? So even though Harley, Guys tend to hate that because it's a water-cooled motor designed by Porsche. I think it sounds cool, and they're probably some of the coolest bikes that they made. At least I used to think so. I used to think that the the street rod was pretty cool, but they don't make that anymore. Uh, at any rate, so it just got me thinking, what type of names sell? Does did the B-King not sell because it was called the B-King or just because it was hideously ugly? Why don't naked bikes do well here? You know, for the last like six years, uh, it's all been hipster. Uh, you know, what started as the hipster craze with a bunch of flannel and leather, um, kind of like Doc Martin looking boots with like rolled pants and a mustache and open face helmets. You never used to see that stuff. It was always, um, power rangers or you know the guys from occ choppers you know on on the cruisers and that was that so now or or i guess there was the third which is like the adv the guy who's always in the oh shit what are those the arrow stitch the guy in the stitch on the bmw (laughs) so yeah i just started thinking about with the motorcycle market a lot of people are thinking that it's stagnating and a lot of people think that we're you know they've run out of stuff they're just calling stuff letters now Every, all the creativity's gone out of it everything's starting to look uh sort of similar and i mean you know what the ujm it was a inline four cylinder uh you know certain cc and disc brakes and you know usually had like a uh whatever the seating was similar on all of them. You know what I mean? Like the reason they called it the UJM is because they all kind of look the same. And I think this sort of thing goes with the sport bikes nowadays too, unless you're really familiar with like the little 
intricacies. Like if you're not into sport bikes, if you're a cruiser guy, unless you can see the name on the fairing, you probably don't aren't a hundred percent sure what it is. Whereas with, you know, sport bike guys, they can pick that stuff out and they probably couldn't tell cruisers apart. So that's the other thing is it, it takes a really radical styled bike to really stand out. Like the BMW, uh, S 1000 RR, that thing has asymmetrical headlights. It's got like a shark gill sort of fairing. Um, you know, they didn't go with like the parallel or, uh, or the telelever front end or anything on it like that. But I mean, you know, there's certain sport bikes that do stand out. The Ducatis are pretty, uh, if you see like a trellis frame or like a big, huge fairing, you know, it's pretty much a Ducati. It could be an Aprilia. I mean, you could be looking at some weird Aprilia or something like that, but a lot of times you can tell Ducatis when you see a Ducati, you can tell the old, uh, KTM, some of the first, you know, they used to be dirt bikes for a long time, but when you saw their first street bikes, you could tell they were KTMs. So I don't know. And those ones went by serial numbers too. So it's not like they had a fancy name, but I'm just saying, you know, with a lot of, with a lot of marketing and stuff in, in much need right now where the motorcycles are starting to look the same, they are starting to handle pretty close to the same. What are, what are we going to be doing in the next like few years to make motorcycles stand out again and, and make people that don't ride want to ride them or just look at it and, Oh, is that the, the RV nine four three one three Z, or are they going to look at that and go, "Oh man, that's the soul smasher"? You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. That's that's the problem. Is that you need to think up names that aren't going to be hideous in history, right? <laughs> but that attract people to write them. And that kind of segues into the next thing I wanted to talk about, which has actually come up a bunch of times on other shows as well that I listen to and actually with me and thinking about motorcycles recently and I was thinking about how do you market the motorcycle if you were a designer how do you come up with a cool name that's going to stand the test of time and what really makes your motorcycle stand out and like I said this plateau that we're kind of seeing in the design of bikes and you know once you find out that something works everybody does it you know once people find out that radial brakes are really at the when you're racing not on the street it doesn't make a big difference but on the track it does to feel and rigidity to have radial mounted brakes and um, stuff like that everybody starts doing it so then every bike has radial mounted brakes uh, I'm sure Buell's idea of ZTL brakes really did work that um, it would have caught on unfortunately it didn't catch on because I don't think they worked that great a lot of people swapped out those brakes for standard brake setups and because I guess uh, being out there catching all the energy, it, they boiled a lot and they didn't, they worked really good for a very short amount of time. They were an acute braking system. But at any rate, you know, as bikes are getting faster and faster, what's going to be the limit? And this, like I said, segueing from like the design of it into the actual performance of the bikes, um, bikes, the Safoglu. I forget how to say his first name, Stefan. Is it Stefan Zafoglu? He just went like 300 miles an hour on an H2 on a closed course, right? When are you ever going to be able to do that on a bike? And So do bikes need to be able to go over, let's, let's not be crazy here and say like 100 because of course they do, but 
uh, I'm, let's say like 170 because drag racing, uh, you can always prep your bike to go way faster than that, right? If you're really getting into it, road racing and track days, if you're a really good rider, you can get up to that fast. But if you are a, um, you know, just you're going there to learn or you're getting into track riding and you're like, you know, not the top tier group yet, do you really need to go like over 170 because once you get up there you can modify the bike and go faster i mean if you're racing even in a stock class if you're fast you're fast you know what i mean so having bikes that just keep getting faster and faster and faster our human bodies aren't getting faster and they're having to make tires that try to keep up with the bike's performance and then we, we see stuff was it boss yeah loris boss's um tire blew out on the straightaway at like 180 miles an hour you know what i mean and it's like so even some of the tires were trying to develop to keep up with the speeds that these bikes are capable of. And to be honest, unless you're trying for like a world speed record in a straight line, you're never going to be going 300 miles an hour. You know what I mean? Or 200 miles, uh, 200 easy. But I think uh, Safuglu did like 299 or 300. At any rate, so bikes are getting faster and faster. When are we going to put a limit on this stuff, right? And especially to, to on street bikes. And as lame as that sounds, like as much of a grandpa move as that sounds, when are you going to be going 200 miles an hour, even on the freeway through like Montana or on the Autobahn or across Australia? You know what I mean? Like you're never going to be going 200 miles an hour or however many kilometers that is, like 385 kilometers an hour or whatever. You know what I mean? Like it's insane to think that you'd be going that fast, um, for any length of time. And usually if you do, if you haven't gone through the certain training, then uh, probably it's not going to end well, <laughs> even if you do. So how do you sell bikes? If you, going back to the original question of marketing and selling, how do you sell bikes that maybe have topped out on performance or speed? You, uh, we, we're breaking the 300 mile an hour speed barrier uh, our bodies die when we hit stuff at 80 miles an hour sometimes, depending on if we run straight into something, we can die at like 40 or 50 if we get hit right. You know what I mean? It doesn't take 300 miles an hour to kill us. So we're making stuff that's like just way out there for whatever reason. Would it be less fun to watch racing if they only went like 150? I mean, isn't it the fact that like that they're battling each other and doing all this cool stuff? I don't think the speeds really matter that much. I think it's the action that you see while they're racing that makes it fun. And uh, I've watched plenty of short track racing and kart track racing and supermoto where they're not breaking 100 miles an hour probably. And it's just so exciting because the corners and the jumps and the straightaways is where like all the battling's happening, you know, and it's actually more of the riders that are equally matched than it is the speed. So... Um, you know, and, and as bikes are reaching this zenith right now of performance, what's the next thing? Like how fast, how much more development do we need to give to motorcycles? How much faster do we need to make them go? How much more do we need to spend like trillions of dollars in an air tunnel to, or in a wind tunnel to make sure that they, we can eke out the last bit of downforce while reducing like the coefficient of drag to get the top speed up. You know what I mean? Like I think for most of us, especially commuters and Canyon carvers and stuff like that, we're cool with doing like a hundred miles an hour 
And we're cool with having a bike that handles really well on the street and doesn't necessarily need us to be like on the knife's edge all the time as we're riding around, you know, like, uh, all these crazy things that are coming onto them as far as like electronics and all this and that. And I see it in the automotive industry because more and more and more, uh, electronics are coming into cars. And I've mentioned this on other episodes before where cars are going to ultra lightweight and carbon fiber, um, these crazy metals that aren't even welded anymore. They're adhesive bonded with like special polymers because it's not a hundred percent metal that you're working with anymore. It's like a metallic plastic or like a plastic substrate that's like got this weird, like, uh, you know, rigidity to it. That's just as strong as metal, but will deflect or whatever, you know, all this crazy stuff. And the, why are they doing that is to make it lighter because even high strength steel isn't as light as some of these composites that they're coming up with. Now, why do you need to make it lighter? It's because you're adding all these new safety features and ECUs for ECUs and all these components and modulators and drive by wire systems that all work on like servos. And even if they don't work on servos, they work on something that's not just a pulley and a cable. So you got to make all these things uh, and then these little components and then you got to make the components that control them through the computer, which are computers. And a lot of people, especially uh, most of the Italian companies and BMW for sure is one of the only companies that has CAN bus systems. I think I've seen Harley kind of going to like a CAN bus system, but they're kind of trying to do that to reduce the wiring harnesses on these things. Like you should see a schematic for like a BMW wiring harness or a Harley wiring harness. Harley wiring harnesses are eight pages of wiring harness, especially if you have ABS and keyless ride. Uh, BMWs have got it down to one diagram. If you go to realoem.com, you can see a bunch of BMW stuff there. Sometimes they'll have, uh, depending on how big your bike is, they'll have the main wiring harness, the tail wiring harness, the engine wiring harness, and the fairing wiring harness. Now, Harley-Davidson does the same thing, only the main wiring harness has about 25 pages. The fairing harness might have two pages, and then the engine harness has its own page. And then if you have, like, communications, like a CB and stuff, the console has its wiring harness. Like, there's all these wiring harnesses. Those things aren't light. And now connect, like, a ABS module to that, a fuel, uh, you know, the EFI module, the IMU, or on, on Harley, they call them body control modules. And on the uh, BMW, they call them, like, BSMK or something like that. And then a lot of other ones just call them ECUs. But then put in the ABS module, the anti-theft module, um, the hydraulic modulator for ABS, uh, all this stuff just starts weighing bikes down, right? So as we're pushing bikes to the limits on all this stuff and all these variables that can go into them, and we have to have computers now to control all that stuff because now that you've got ABS and you've got traction control, like with uh, the R1 and with BMW's had it forever on the S1000RR, you go into a corner, you can give it full throttle since it's ride by wire the computer has to do a whole bunch of calculations and tell you what the wheel speed sensors are rotating at, the lean angle of the bike, the pitch, um, you know, the yaw, whatever, because it's got like slide control and all this shit. 
uh, you can put the brakes on in the middle of the corner and you won't tuck the front end because a computer is doing all that stuff for you. Now, this is another thing that I constantly rant on about is computers and <laughs> how I kind of don't like that all this technology is doing everything for us. But it, it isn't such a really bad thing if it saves you from tucking in the corner. But then again, we're riding different. And that's something that uh, gets talked about in MotoGP and why Rossi for the last few years maybe hasn't been doing as great as in the past. He's one of the only guys, though, that's adapted to the new riding styles um, compared to like Marquez who's dragging his head, you know, and, and Jorge Lorenzo comes in and kind of starts copying that. And then all the new guys are just riding like that because that's how they're learning uh, from the get go. You know, that's just how the bike handles to them. And these old guys that used to have to rely on their wrist and their, uh, you know, their instincts, you don't have you don't have to rely on instinct. You don't even have instinct anymore. If you were to get on an older bike, you'd really have a learning curve uh, compared to like what these new ones are. And that's the same with cars. And so all these composites and all that stuff, bikes are just getting heavier and heavier and heavier and heavier. So bikes, on one hand, are reaching these limits where we can do 300 miles an hour now on a production bike, and yet it has all these crazy things all these uh, sensors and this and that. And that's, uh, to me, I think that's what's going to be the wave of the future. That's going to be the whole marketing thing. This whole kind of segue from marketing to this that I want, that got me thinking about it was because when you're trying to market a motorcycle, you get on a bike and you ride. You put your ass on the seat, you go for, forward, you learn how to shift, all this stuff. Well, come to this future time, you everything's going to be have ABS on it. And in Europe, ABS is required on everything already. And pretty soon they're not going to want to make different bikes for different markets. So I'm pretty sure ABS is going to just be on everything over here. Let's give it like five, five years, you know, five or eight years. Um, but I'm sure that probably within a decade, especially where the economy is going to go, you're not going to want to start making stuff for different markets, you know what I mean? And all the tooling that's going to go into it. So probably everything is just going to be one thing, one straight line and whatever they have in Europe is what we're going to have here. And so marketing that marketing, rideability, marketing, handling, and, and all this and that, I think the way that we're going to go at an, and as bikes progress toward this other plateau that I'm talking about, not only like a marketing and sales plateau, but also like a performance plateau, the only way we're going to get around that is to keep adding more and more electronics. And, you know, I mentioned the carbon frames that BMW has a couple episodes ago, and that's how I'm thinking all bikes are going to be going to some sort of like super high strength uh, alloys or super high strength um, composite materials just because they're not going to be able to have all these electronics and sensors that we're going to be having on bikes to make them ride easier. Cause that's the only way they're going to get new people coming up, you know, in the future to ride bikes is just to make it easier. And that's how they're going to market. You know what I mean? If it's not the cool factor, it's going to be the ease factor. And I truly believe that. And if you don't believe me, Honda's coming out with an ADV scooter that uh, I'm not knocking it. It looks pretty pretty bitching actually, but that's this next step. And we've seen it with Honda a lot with their DN01, with the NM4, uh, all the bikes, the Africa twins with the, um, the CVT and the, or the DCT rather, I'm sorry. And even the NC 700 has that. And I think there was an old 
the C, not the CTX thirteen hundred, but I think uh, the ST one thousand or something had that when it first came out. Like that was the first bike that it debuted on back uh, in like two thousand nine or something like that. But you know, so stuff like that. It is. It's it's already here. Automatic is here, right? Cleveland Moto was talking about the K pipe. How that thing basically has just like. Uh, a slipper clutch that you really don't have to shift, you know, in first gear, you don't have to not uh, pull in, you don't have to pull in the clutch. You can just stop and it's, you know, making everything easy. Now that's like rudimentary uh, mechanics there, but, but you get up into these computer systems where everything's doing all the thinking for you. And that's basically, you're going to have to have that as bikes reach these performance plateaus. You know, when you're doing capable of 200 miles an hour and leaning over and jamming on the brakes in a corner. And the bike is the only thing that's making you not crash because in any other circumstance on any other era bike, you would be eating shit, at least tuck in the front, if not high siding, the bike's doing all that for you. So I think that, uh, really just all this, all this new slate of stuff that I've been reading about and hearing about and thinking about the next couple of years in motorcycling with the economy still not like wonderful, you know, every, the, the bottom fell out in 2008 and it's still, we've seen a, a tremendous comeback, thankfully, but we still have seen, uh, companies come and go, you know what I mean? And and other companies that were around back then quietly disappearing or quietly just crawling their way back out this deep, deep well that they were in. And Kimco is one of those. Hyasung is one of those. I know they're both still around, but they were like poised back right when the bubble was going up and 61% of new sales were like scooters and and, uh, motorcycles were enjoying like 8% or 10% year over year growth. And then all of a sudden, you know, blam, everything goes flat and then the vacuum starts sucking everything backwards. So we've, we've crawled, we've crawled a long way and we've come a long way. We've relied on racing to bring us these technologies and we've relied on racing to develop these technologies. Riding is cool as hell. There's never been a better time to ride than right now just because all the options that are available and all the scenes that are cool right now. We still have, whether you're into vintage bikes, that whole thing is still going on. Um, you know, especially the choppers right now and, and bobbers, brats, trackers, even cafe racers that may have waned, but, um, you know, there's still people out there doing them and doing them right and selling kits and, you know, making all that stuff cool. Or you can go to the other end and buy like an arch for like $83,000 or still buy like a crazy Ducati or, uh, MV or Aprilia. You know what I mean? Like you can go from one spectrum to the next. And if you're looking for technology, you got BMWs, you know what I mean? Like there's all, you can, you can literally pick. So that's the one good thing about riding right now and the market right now and development right now is that this culmination of the last 10 years has really resulted in this time period where you can be a vintage junkie and things are just as cheap. That is, well, actually, that's the flip side of it is the vintage crap is getting uh, less cheap. And I don't know if it's because inflation 
<laughs> for the you know current market prices, or if it's because people are like, wait, I can't a I can't afford bikes now because of all this shit that's going into them, and, and a new bike is just crazy uh, expensive because it's got all this technology, or if it's because uh, you know like I said, either inflation or that scene right now is growing big because that is one thing is that with all these new um, Harley Davidsons coming out and all the new you know, wango tango technology that's getting thrown into every new bike. People seem to be gravitating toward uh, custom old vintage shit. And I know it, instead of cafe racers, all the people that sold their cafe racers are buying older Harleys now. So Harleys are just, I'm surprised that they're even going to be selling new bikes because old, I haven't seen any, I've seen a lot of hipsters on Harleys and it's really hip to ride a Harley right now as hip as it was to ride a cafe racer. Uh, let's say like seven, eight years ago or a tracker, like within the last like three years, which is kind of going away old Harleys and choppers making a big comeback, but the old ones and see, I don't think the people that are riding those ones can afford one of these new $25,000 ones. I mean, a sportster that's right around like seven or eight thou for like an 883, maybe because you can't buy like even old Harleys are that much. You know what I mean? But I've seen a lot of, a lot of new sportsters on the road. Um, but the only people I still see buying these old big baggers are a little bit older people, you know what I mean? Or, or, uh, construction workers. <laughs> so, or, uh, what did I say earlier? Um, exe- uh, executive producers, people that want to be associated with the bagger brand, you know what I mean? So, yeah, I don't know. Just got me thinking this week. I was all about thinking about the new stuff that I've been seeing coming out. And it got me thinking about, uh, marketing basically and marketing and designing and everything that's supposed to be coming out this year. That's supposed to be great. And all people can talk about is the new, this coming out and the new, that coming out and why aren't they making this? And why aren't they making that? And bikes that can weigh like less sub 350 pounds and go 300 miles an hour. And I was just thinking, man, like we, we are at a time right now. We don't even, we're taking it for granted at some point. And Really, with all this going on, <laughs> Harley and the Davidsons got brought up in an email. I was already kind of thinking about it. And then when it got brought up in an email, it kind of tied in with this whole marketing thing. And it's like, yeah, that that is marketing right there. That's marketing 101. Uh, make a faux documentary about how awesome you are and shit on everybody else. <laughs> so thanks, Paul, for writing in about that. And like just making it clear to me that I had to talk about that on this episode. Oh my God. So listen, it's been balmy here, folks. If you saw the video that I put up of my little ride that I did over the weekend, I went up to Altadena and cruised around. I looked at some historical stuff while I was up there and took a few pics, but didn't put those on. But anyway, if you could see that what looked like a smog bank. Basically, it was a little bit of smog, but it was also that marine layer holding in like the moisture from the coast. Uh, It has just been like that this whole week. It's just been, uh, it's been warm, but it's been muggy. It reminds me a little bit of the South or the East and uh, yeah, not real pleasant. It's like overcast, but at the same time you're sweating and it hasn't been like that here for quite a while. So there's some tropical storm down in Mexico shoving up like some pressure system this way. And right now 
it's nighttime. It's really cool. And it's like muggy as all hell. So I feel like I'm back home. Uh, anyway, so that's pretty interesting. Another interesting thing, something that plays off of something that's happening this weekend, which is the WIR Top 10, one of their final, they have two races left. Tomorrow is the uh, second to the last one. By the time this comes out, I hope that they get to hear it uh, on their way to the drags. But at any rate, yeah, this is going to be crazy because, uh, you know, Mr. Singsheim sent me an account of what happened at Cots to his bike. And it seemed like there's a lot of pressure on the, the guys at Cots, And, uh, you know, that's anything can happen there. And proof in the, is in the pudding. The fact that, you know, a lot of them didn't run so hot and it just happened to, you know, just down to circumstance and nothing major, just, you know, no crashes or flips. Uh, although, Let me tell you what Chris said. Chris sent me an account of what happened on his run at Cods. So basically he said that he bogged it at the start after almost redlighting. And there's an account that he put up on the WIR Top 10 page if you want to go there. This is just a personal account that he sent to me. So dig this. He stages up. He rolls a little too far. The light triggers. The guy goes. He gives it full throttle. His computer tries to kill him as it bogs and he's barely going and the map senses that he's at full throttle and the nitrous kicks in, sending him hurtling down the track at 153 miles an hour. He pulled really hard coming out of the groove when he shifted into second and he was trying to correct. And if you listen to, I believe episode 11 was the first time we talked to Chris and he would... He told us how he corrects using his knees out in the breeze to kind of steer the bike because at those speeds, that's exactly just the littlest input can turn you. So the bike's crab walking down the track sideways. He's doing 187. The guy is still pulling on him. He's really pulling hard toward the right. When he shifts a second to correct, the front end came up and bounced a little bit and he actually bunny hopped. And while he's in the air, he did like a little head shake. And then nobody's ever flown inverted with the MiG-23, but Singsheim pulls it off. He gets up there. He's flying inverted with the guy. He takes a Polaroid to document the moment. Uh, he couldn't pull a wheelie, so he put the air brakes on, and the guy flew right by. And uh, he basically had to like let it go. He was on the apron when he let off, and he said he could have caught the guy. And in his mind, he did this crazy quick trajectory. If you ever watch uh, the newer Sherlock Holmes movies, you'll see how he does like all these quick calculations in his head and figures out what's going to happen. Chris did that. His mind was just like computing and calculating, did some quick geometry, some vectored speed analogy and algorithm ran through his mind like one of those CSI shows and he figured that he could have pulled the guy and caught him right at the same time that he would have intersected the wall so it was either intersect uh, time and space continuum with man or intersect with wall and he didn't want to do that he got such a crazy head shake and was going about 323 and the g-forces of him taking off so fast were so incredibly strong and, and hard on his uh body and his machine that his clip-on actually pulled back to the um, behind the gas tank and was holding him onto his bike and uh, he decided it was time to let off a little bit so it was like three seconds of hell and uh, you know there'll be he said there'll be pics and stuff popping up soon but god what a harrowing like crazy crazy ordeal to go through and uh, if you like that story there's more like that 
going to be happening at the track tomorrow at the WIR Wisconsin International Raceway, Kakana, Wisconsin. Drop. There's actually quite a lot going on this weekend, and uh, I wanted to make sure that you were aware. Uh, if, if you're not able to go to the WIR Top 10 Drags, that ought to be pretty amazing and fun to go to. You can always check out something else that's happening, which is the AMA Flat Track Finals. It's at the Ramspur Winery up in Santa Rosa. If you can make it there... I'm sure the weather is going to be just beautiful for it. And you're going to see the season finale, which is super close. If you heard me talk about it last week, and if you heard me talking about it all year, where Flying Brian Smith has been leading the points on the miles, uh, getting cleaned up in, in the smaller races. He's been practicing his flat track game. I got to see him uh, a couple times this year in San Diego, and that was real fun. And he was really working the short track game. Uh, so check that out. They're gonna, it's, of course, it's going to be in a mile, so it doesn't matter. But you're going to see him and Jared uh, battle head-to-head because after his points reinstatement, they are literally like, I think it's two points separate them right now. So with uh, Jared Meese also going to Indian next year, it's probably, you know, I've, I've read it. It's, it's happening. I wasn't a hundred percent sure if it was, if it was happening or not, but I just read a minute ago that he's going to be going over there. So yeah, it, this is going to be one last time for me. He's been on a Harley for quite a long time on the long track. So it's, it's going to be pretty amazing. Uh, something else that's happening this weekend here and across the globe is the Deus bike build off. That'll be September 24th. Uh, if you're here in California, you can go to Venice and check that out. The one, uh, I think there's another one in Sydney, one in Bali. I think they have uh, two more locations worldwide. Gosh darn it, come on. I hate when my recorder gets in the way. So, yeah, they're going to have four categories, open, pro, race bike, and small bore. Uh, Sydney. Australia, Venice, California, Milan, Italy, Bali, Bali, and Tokyo, Ohio. <laughs> Just kidding. Tokyo's in Indiana next to Terre Haute. So yeah, at any rate, that's going to be going on this weekend. Um, the other thing that's going to be going on, SoCal Cycle Swap Meet, if you're in Long Beach, that's always a really cool thing to hit up. Uh, another big worldwide event happening on the 25th is the Distinguished Gentleman's Ride. Uh, you know, check every town basically is having one. So check that out. Uh, in a couple weeks, we got the White Lightning Camp out that I mentioned. Um, the Babes on Motos, if you remember me trying to remember that acronym last week, it's the the Eastside Moto Babes putting on Babes on Moto 7. Uh, we're probably going to leave it there because then there's a couple things coming up. But um Next month, there's going to be also a lot more stuff coming up. Um, oh, yeah, something else that's coming up this weekend is the Hell on Wheels. Uh, they're having another steeplechase at the Slam Fest, and so that ought to be pretty cool. MX Milestone Park in uh, – where is Milestone? It's in Riverside. Um, I mean, Riverside's kind of a big area to say, but, yeah, MX uh, – it's Milestone Motocross Park. Just go check that out. 
coming up in October. There's some cool stuff like the Kernville campout. Babe's ride out for uh, the race of gentlemen, all that stuff. We'll get to that later once October gets here, which is actually coming on pretty fast. And, uh, you know, November, I'm already looking at stuff for November. Jeez, it's this year is just flying by. So that's just a couple things to look out for if you need something to do this weekend. And let's get into some other news, some global news. Bullshit. You guys want to hear some bullshit out of France? Yeah. So listen to this. Uh, I just read today that uh, gloves are going to be compulsory for riders and passengers in France. So you've got to wear gloves or you're going to face a 68 euro fine and a point on your license. Now, the FFMC, which I mentioned a while back during the lane splitting, I believe, or uh, I forget what episode it was. I think it was lane splitting and filtering when France tried to outlaw that as well and make it mandatory for people to wear high-vis stuff. It sounds like France is a little bit of a nanny state. Now, I'm, I'm with France. You know, France is one of the last cool free countries in the world. Um, <laughs> that's like a total lie, but whatever. Anyway, uh, just trying to make a, a crummy point here that uh, – France is becoming a nanny, a nanny country, and uh, their freedoms are going away. Now, isn't it good to wear gloves? Absolutely. And, you know, you already have helmet laws. Why not make glove laws? Well, okay, pretty soon you're going to start telling people what sort of gloves they got to wear, what color they got to wear. I mean, that high-vis thing was like a step in that direction where you're telling everyone they got to wear mandatory high-vis vests or jackets, you know what I mean? And it's like, dude, who's going to pay for that? Who's going to pay for this and that? You you know, all these things that we're going to make mandatory, are you going to pay for it? Is this going to be the price of becoming a writer? Are you trying to get people to quit writing? What's going on here, right? So if you remember the FFMC, which I think stood for the Angry French Motorcyclists or something like that, they said that it's not that they're against wearing gloves because I, I don't think that's it. I think any responsible rider will wear gloves. We all know that when you go to eat shit, the first thing you do is put out your hands, right? Unless you're upside down and then you're not really thinking. You're, you know, your head is just the first thing to hit the ground then. But it's probably due to the costs of all these uh, hand replacements that I've been reading about in their socialized uh, medical program that it's costing taxpayers there's a lot of money, a lot of tax dollars going to replacing people's hands and fingers that have fallen off motorcycles without gloves on, right? So in order to curb that, they're making gloves mandatory because, you know, that'll save you. I think the main point that the motorcyclists are trying to make, though, and the, f- the fact that they say right here in the article is that uh, under these the threat of fines and losing points, they want you to wear gloves. You know, there's no it says right here, quote, there's no lives at stake. And if we don't wear gloves, then we aren't threatening other people's integrity, which is true. I mean, if you don't wear gloves, you're not going to hurt anybody but yourself if you crash, you know, you, you may not crash and you you probably won't. And if you're smart, you have gloves on anyway. But the one time you forget them or like me, you rip them and you're waiting for a new pair to come in and you go for a ride without them, that's costing you money and a point on your license. It almost sounds like another way to make money and it almost sounds like another way to take away freedoms by taking away little stuff like this at first, which sounds normal. Yeah, you should always wear gloves. I mean, that's totally ridiculous, right? So yeah, let's just make that a law. That's totally stupid. But then what about the day 
you know, when they say, well, all your gloves have to be yellow or they start saying that, you know, I don't know. It, it, it is a slippery slope and I see it. And the, the point being, I guess it's the same thing with the helmet law here in the United States is that, yeah, if you're not an idiot, you're already wearing certain types of gear, right? And what's next? They're going to tell you how thick your jeans have to be and this and that. And it's just going to add cost onto being a motorcyclist. And then people aren't going to ride bikes. And then it's going to be more of a hassle to get all the gear and get all the safety crap that you have to have in order to ride. And the motorcycle industry is going to suffer ultimately. But I do, I do see, and I'm, I guess I'm starting to see the light of the helmet law here in the United States. I think it's totally stupid not to wear a helmet. And I think that 99% of people that, uh, wear helmets think that it's stupid not to wear a helmet too. And would probably support, uh, a, a helmet mandate. But at the same time, uh, you know, a lot of people that live in states that don't have a helmet law still wear a helmet because they realize it's dumb not to. Right. So that's I think, you know, that's the thing here that I can I can see with this glove thing is that you're actually going to like charge people money, fine people and give them a point just for not wearing gloves, which is like literally the last piece of safety equipment that you really need to worry about. I don't know. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Uh, another thing that I thought was really cool and interesting is that they are just blaming out all sorts of 2017 bikes. I told you it was going to be a hot year for bikes. Uh, put I threw up on Creative Riding uh, Facebook page a picture of the, um, the R2 that's coming out, which is like the little... Uh, version smaller version of the H2 and it's a supercharged 600 and the patent uh, photos came out for that today the patent drawings actually um, so that was pretty interesting the Honda retro racer from the Bangkok show last year also showed up in some patents and that was exciting there were some more patent drawings showing a Honda duo lever design uh, not quite exactly like BMW's duo lever but uh, nonetheless the same with like a solid front fork piece that then you know has its suspension located up underneath uh, the bike so i thought that's really interesting especially coming from honda uh, they're usually not very risky so this must be something that they've been testing for a while the article i read said that they uh they suspected this would be on it a while ago because they saw some design stuff popping up here and there last year and it just kind of like phased out for a little while and they didn't see anything so now they're confirming it with these uh, patent drawing, these uh, filings. And that was on the Goldwing, if I didn't mention uh, what bike that was from. Something else that I saw was the uh, Kawasaki Z800. It's probably going to get a partial fairing on it. So that was pretty interesting to see. There's also uh, another bike from Honda coming out called the CMX500. That looks, um, I don't know, it looks pretty cool actually. Uh, and uh, there were some patent drawings or patent filing drawings for that on there. And uh, those are, uh, this thing kind of looks like a sporty, uh, they're calling it a roadster, but it kind of looks like something that would compete with, um, I don't know, like the Ducati Street Fighter or something like that. So yeah, that uh, was pretty cool looking. Uh, what else? There's just a ton of new quote unquote spy shots. Um, uh, Benelli Tornado 302. That's probably not coming to the States. This is a UK site, by the way, that I saw been reading all these articles on 
And so I'm not 100% sure if that's evidence that these bikes are going to make it to the States. But what it what is cool is the fact that they could. You know, all these patent filings mean that they do exist. And therefore, they could be coming over here, especially if they have to redo everything for 2017 anyway. Um, I'm sure that it's quite possible. So Suzuki has two new bikes, according to... Japan sources, the GSX 250F and the Vision GSXR Retro. Uh, so that's cool. I did mention the Kawasaki. Did I mention the Kawasaki Z 900 RS or something like that on the last episode, which is like also this really bitchin' looking retro. So yeah, here here comes that like onslaught of 2017 bikes that I was talking about. And since I've been recording these shows in Ride Report segmented throughout the week, on Monday when I looked, the, none of this stuff was here. This has all literally been happening over the past couple days. Um, something else that happened, which is kind of funny, is I mentioned on, I believe it was the last show, I mentioned the BMW Scrambler since I was working on it at work and I was looking at how everything's so modular and there's all these kits for it. And uh, it's based off the R9T. And I had mentioned that when the R9T came out, it also was modular and there was a bunch of kit parts that you could buy for it. And some of them even said like, uh, not street legal if you put this part on it. And it was basically like this seat replacement that basically cut off the rear subframe and now you just have a small bracket with the seat and it kind of sat from what I could see a little bit behind the wheel or something like that. There was no place to mount the license plate bracket or the turn signals. The turn signals actually mounted down on the shocks or something if you got this kit. So I'm not 100% sure if it's this kit that you bought that made things, you know, kind of screwed things up. But basically the uh, NH... TSA recall says that the um, the rear indicators didn't comply with the federal motor vehicle safety standards, which dictates how high, um, you know, the way a, a license plate has to be illuminated, how high and far apart turn signals have to be. And that's why when you buy a stock sport bike, and especially from the 80s and stuff, and they've got the honk, big old giant uh, apple-sized or tangerine-sized turn signals out there, and they're sticking way out. You know, those if you ever fall over, those things hit the ground first because they stick out so damn far. And you're wondering why they do that. And you go to the store and you get the little tiny cat eye LED ones that are only like an inch long. And you throw them on there. You could get a ticket for that because there is like a standard for a car how far away they are from a motorcycle there's a minimum of where you can have your stuff mounted and these things didn't meet that minimum i know bmw offers <laughs> and other parts from their accessory catalog so you can get sneezes you can get uh, led lamps you can get all sorts of stuff no they they offer led lamps and uh, small replacement stuff and i think just maybe if you had one of these kits because that's the picture that they're showing here I've seen it now on two different sites, the same picture, and it's showing one of these modular kits that just has a seat and the really tiny, tiny uh, turn signals kind of located down where a car wouldn't see them. They're so far in and they're hidden behind possibly the shocks or the wheel or something like that. So that's why they're, they're getting a recall on that. Um, but at any rate, yeah, R9T owners, uh, are you guys ready to wrap this thing up and get to like our DIY tech tip for the week? I sure am. All right, let's uh, wrap up the show here.
Uh-huh. All right. Well, this week's tip is going to be short and simple. Be organized. So if you've ever seen a picture of a really cool shop that has like their shit together, literally together, or if you've even seen a video from the Motorcycles and Misfits or pictures from them, if you ever go to Mule Motorcycles website, I think there's an article on there, or he was featured, Richard Pollock was featured in uh, maybe the knee slider, I forget what it was, but it was about like shop etiquette and running a productive shop. Everybody says the same thing. Everybody that has a productive shop and, you know, this is creative writing. So no matter what you do, whether you're an artist or a painter or a graphic designer or website designer and whatever you do, an organized workspace makes all the difference. And, you know, this is kind of goes off what we've been talking about the last couple episodes. The last few tech tips are bleeding together because you have, you know, Basically, have a table, have a work surface, keep it clean, like Mr. Singsheim was saying last week, and he's got his little tool swivel out of the way. But being clean and, and having all that, the next the next step is just being organized. Now, I have, for the longest time, hated when I set something down and I go to, you know, you had to cut something short or something comes up and you run out of the workplace. You, maybe you don't get back that day and you come back two days or three days later and you can't remember exactly what you had out. Or it's that one time when you need that one piece that you saved from whatever, you know, I'm going to need this piece. I shouldn't bend this thing. And then the one time you need it, it's like five years later and you're like, I saved that thing because I knew I was going to need it. And now you just got to dig through everything and find it because you didn't keep it in an organized spot. So along with like having a a workspace and having a, a clean and all that stuff, organization goes a long, long way. A lot of places have hardware, and I used to work at a shop where you know we had we had bins from this company called Windsor. Uh, Granger also does it. Um, Ababa. There's a lot of places that do that make hardware and you know organize it for shops and stuff like that. And you actually have these little clips and screws and all sorts of crazy hardware so that you don't have to special order it from the dealer or go online to find it every single time you need it. You run into your hardware room and there's just, you know, I I used to work at a shop that had a hardware room as big as the freaking bedroom in a house, like a huge living room sized room full of nothing but these drawers full of hardware. And it was so nice. It was like Jay Leno's garage, basically like just a dream where you're like, I'll never have that in my house, but it's so nice to have it here at a shop. And you can do that to some degree. I, you know, I hate Harbor Freight stuff, but I do have to say that if you're just looking for parts bins and stackable bins and drawers and little label stuff that you can put stuff in that's modular, uh, my little parts bin that I have can actually hang. So, you know, you got your pegboard. I made my workbench, didn't have a pegboard for the longest time. Every cool shop has like their pegboard back there with all their tools hanging on it. And recently I was like, you know what? I have a pegboard now. I built it into the back um, earlier this year or last year or something like that. And I use it to hang the stuff that I'm currently working. Because like I said, I hate running out of there, not remembering where I put something down. So what I do is I hang the big tools and like all the work equipment that I normally have. Like I, I 
go through periods where I grind and weld a lot and then I might not do it for months and then I do it again, but I always have some glasses and some ear muffs hanging up because, you know, that's just stuff you don't want to go digging for when you need it. And then you might be doing something dumb like sawing a piece of wood for something totally unrelated and you got your stuff hanging right there. So I always keep like some basic stuff hanging on that pegboard. And my, like I was, uh, what got me thinking about that was also my little nut and screw tray uh, little box that I have is mountable. So it's like, you know, instead of having that thing sit and taking up space, that's hung up. So little, little things like that, keeping you organized just really makes a big difference and helps you stay clean and have a productive workspace. So it's kind of piggyback. And this is like a daisy chain of things that'll just make your workspace even better, uh, more fun. It'll make you look forward to going out there. If you can kind of keep everything clean, it's not always possible. My workbench looks like I threw a grenade into the a fucking bike and then it blew up and just parts went everywhere all over my bench and tools and things that don't even go to the bike sitting up there. So, I mean, you know, it, it looks like crazy right now, but I do have it organized to where I know at least when I go out there, what's sitting where. So, but, uh, yeah, organization and keeping things picked up is the main thing and it'll make you look forward to working on your stuff and your projects and uh, even if you're an artist lots of artists there's a couple people that do leather work and tooling and stuff like that and they have all their stuff laid out just like a mechanic would so it doesn't matter if you're doing you know mechanical wrenching on stuff if you're pen and paper person if you're you know doing your graphical art on the computer you got all your stuff laid out and organized, it's going to make everything so much better if you're not always having to clear your desk off so you got a place to move your mouse or like if you're doing leather work, you know, finding a place to hammer on and this and that. So yeah, it just, it makes a big, big difference. And I I hope that will suffice for this week's text tip. All right, let's get on to the sorry list and get the hell out of here, shall we? Creative writing and anybody associated with the program and the production would like to say sorry to the following constituents. Sorry to Brazil. Sorry, ethanol. Sorry, farmers, specifically corn farmers, and sorry to corn. Sorry to the South. We'd like to apologize to the AMA, the EPA, NASA, and the NSA. Sorry to the Exxon Mobil Corporation. Sorry to their Synergy gas detergent additives. Sorry to 250cc sport bikes. Sorry, Harley Davidson. Sorry, wifey. Sorry, Hollywood and the Discovery Channel. Sorry, Indian Motorcycle Company. Sorry, Jared Mees. Sorry, Brian Smith. Sorry, Jim Martin and Adventure Rider Radio. We'd like to apologize to Kimco, Honda, Kawasaki, Yamaha, and Suzuki. And the following models. The Super Cub, the Dream, the Goldwing, the State Line, the Fury, the Katana, the Water Buffalo, the NC700E, the CB500X, the Super Blackbird, the SR71 Blackbird, even though that's not a motorcycle, the R1200 RT, the R1200 GS, the G650GS, the F800R, the G310R, the GSX600RR, the GSXR1000, the GSXR600, the GSX 
S750, the Katana, the Ninja, the Hayabusa, the Shadow, the Fireblade, the Boulevard, the DN01, the ER6N, Harley Davidson and Indian models like the Springfield, the Scout, the War Chief, the Chief, the Chieftain, the Teepee, the Wigwam. Harley Davidson, Fat Boy, V Rod, Fat Bob, Street Bob, Crossbones, Springer, Springer Classic, the Sportster, 883 Iron, the Sportster Nightster, the XR1200, the Harley Davidson Dynabobs, including but not limited to the, uh, I already said the Dinas. Sorry to the Soft Tail Slim. <coughs> Sorry to everything else that we may have missed. <laughs> Sorry to Aerostitch. Sorry to Doc Martin's boots. Sorry to hipsters. Sorry to Power Rangers. OCC. Uh, Stefan. Anybody named Stefan Safaglu, but mostly to Kenan Safaglu. <laughs> Kenan, Stefan, you can see how I messed up. Sorry to the Autobahn, Drag Racers, and anybody I mentioned at the end of the show, like, you know, being productive or living on in a dream or being a graphic artist or anything that I may have cut out but that you won't know that. All right, everybody, uh, take it easy and catch you on the flip side. I'm going to make like a baby and head out of here. So why don't you make like Tom and Cruz? Uh, <laughs> do a lever. Sounds like my favorite band. And the NOS kicks in, or the uh, nitrous oxide is not NOS. Let me erase this. It's terrible. But they're saying that if you wear any motor, any motor, uh, any motor, if you ride a motor, but uh, at any rate, yeah, I think cows in California are going to start getting tickets. Well, on the EPA's blog, they have, uh, and then, are we going to get hosed again? Somebody was talking about this four-gallon minimum, of course, as uh, if they keep farting. As, uh, I'm sorry, I'm not the EPA's blog. Put on there that they're going to quit taking trash to them. You're just going to have to pile it up in your bathtub or something. <laughs>